Secondly, an otherwise promising use of a figure often goes wrong because the speaker overdoes it. Too much ornament in any art tends to leave a worse impression than too little. Skilled and experienced students of rhetoric sometimes are able to use a high density of figures to strong effect. We will see examples soon enough. But for most people, most of the time, an attractive use of these patterns requires moderation and restraint. Thirdly, Rhetorical figures only become powerful when they sound spontaneous and are integrated smoothly into the rest of the way a speaker talks. Most of them come to notice in the first place because people use them unwittingly when they speak from passion and with a dash of inspiration. My young children, when wrathful, are masters of hypophora. Thus, a mediocre speech or piece of writing often announces itself by the forced use of a rhetorical figure too freshly learned or deliberately employed. But then, how does one study techniques that succeed only when they seem unstudied? The answer lies in examples. Rhetorical figures start to sound natural once one has spent so much time with them that they come to mind without effort, and finally serve as shapes into which words assemble themselves by instinct when the situation calls for it. Examples also can do more than exposition to teach lessons about the beauty of a device, about its technical details, and about the occasions for its use, for a sense of the occasion is as important as anything in the mastery of rhetorical figures. Some of them are suited to the expression of certain sorts of ideas or feelings, but sound strange otherwise— Some fit well into certain kinds of writing and speech, but have little or no place in others. Some things that can be done with figures are rarely useful at all, yet are indispensable once or twice in a lifetime one wants to be ready. Examples, if they are to teach all these things, must be not only apt but extensive. Seeing just a few examples invites direct imitation of them, which tends to be clumsy, Immersion in many examples allows them to do their work by way of a subtler process of influence with a gentler and happier effect on the resulting style. As a practical matter, this approach to the study of figures means spending a great deal of time in the company of writers who know the devices intimately and have good taste. This book performs the necessary introductions. It contains more than a thousand illustrations drawn from British, Irish, and American oratory and literature. The right first question about any pattern for the arrangement of words, and the question asked in each chapter of this book, is what use masters of the language have made of it, how Lincoln put it to work, or Churchill, or Burke, or the American founding fathers, or Dickens and Melville, or Shaw and Chesterton, or the Irish orators, Henry Grattan and Richard Layler Scheel, but the reader will see. The masters of the rhetorical figure in English include many storied writers and talkers, but also others less well-known. Making your own first acquaintance with them is part of the fun of studying their craft. Most of the examples here are from English prose rather than verse. They start around 1600, the age of Shakespeare and the King James Bible, and end around 1950. The largest share are from the 19th century and the latter part of the 18th. This selection reflects one of the chief purposes of the book, which is to help recover a rhetorical tradition in English that is less familiar, because it is outside of living memory and is fast becoming more distant as a cultural and stylistic matter. 
thus the word classical in the title. The better authors and statesmen of those earlier periods studied rhetoric more closely than it tends to be studied today, and the English of their times was more hospitable to its charms. We may not want to talk now quite as people did in earlier times. In some respects we are indeed forbidden to talk that way by our culture, but the ablest of the older writers still make the best teachers of rhetoric. Last, a few notes on what this book does not do. It does not come close to discussing every known rhetorical figure. It just covers the eighteen or so that, in my judgment, are of most practical value. Metaphor and simile are omitted here, too, not because they are unimportant, but because they are too important. They are large enough topics to require separate treatment of their own. The book also avoids anything translated into English from other languages, with the exception of the King James Bible.